0: This is baseball tonight the podcast
1: this is the baseball tonight podcast for monday october 16 2023 and today will be better than yesterday taylor parka sarah are all back in connecticut I'm Buster Olney. I'm in my home in Montana. We were all watching game one of the American League Championship Series in Texas, in Houston specifically. You had Justin Verlander on the mound for the Houston Astros in game one of the American League Championship Series facing Jordan Montgomery of the Texas Rangers. He, of course, acquired during the season from the St. Louis Cardinals. And after Evan Carter, yeah, him again, uh, got the Rangers going with a double in the top of the second inning, he quickly came home. Next pitch to Heim.
2: He sends one into right center. That's going to get down. Heim being waved in from third. Here he comes, and the throw will not be close. Texas leads it one nothing as Jonah Heim delivers an RBI single to right center field. And it was the hustle of Carter that puts Texas on top, one to nothing.
1: Yeah, ball hit into right field, and Evan Carter hustled his way into second base to get into scoring position. They took the lead. Taylor, did you hear that crowd? Did you think that was in Houston? I and mean, that, that felt like it was a, pretty, a lot of cheers for the, from Rangers fans.
0: Ooh, Astros showing a little bit of uh, LCS fatigue there maybe. You know, like, ah, I'll catch them in the World Series kind of attitude from <laughs> these, these Houston Knights.
1: Yeah, it didn't feel like a big home field advantage for the Astros in the way that game played out last night. In the fourth inning, the Astros threatened, but Jordan Montgomery navigated his way through that.
2: One ball, two strikes to Maldonado from Montgomery with the bases loaded. Here he comes. Swing and a miss. It was a fastball. And the Astros continue to struggle early in this game with
1: runners on. Uh, Of course, was the voice of Carl Ravich on ESPN radio. And there were, and I was getting texts from people around baseball asking the question: in that spot, should Dusty Baker pinch it for Martin Maldonado? Uh, given the fact that the Astros are carrying an extra catcher on their roster in this round. In the top of the fifth, the Rangers extended their lead.
2: Verlander's 1-2. This ball driven to right. It's deep. Tucker is turning, watching, and Tavares has lifted this one over the wall. The nine-hole hitter hits a home run and gives Texas a 2-0 lead A no-doubter.
1: So Justin Verlander threw well in this game, but you know what? Jordan Montgomery was even better, throwing scoreless ball in the bottom of the eighth inning with the Rangers' bullpen in play. Jose Altuve reached first base, and then this crazy play happened.
2: Chapman ready. Here it comes. And Bregman lifts this one to left. It is fairly deep. Carter going back. Still going back. At the wall, he leaps, and he makes the catch. Altuve retreats, it again, a leaping catch, not at the Crawford box wall, but the second deeper wall. What a play! Who is Evan Carter?
3: He's the best player I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it was Eduardo Perez, Tim Kirchhen. uh We're going to be talking with Tim in a few minutes coming up. But on that play, Jose Altuve, uh, as Carl Ravitch mentioned, he had to retreat back to first because he passed second base. But on his way back. He did not re-tag the base, as you're required to by rule. And right away, Marcus Simeon, the second baseman for the Rangers, was pointing at the base and pointing the umpires, saying that he didn't uh, uh, re-tag on his way back to first base. They reviewed the call, and that decision was overturned. A double play, it turned into. This was the final call in the bottom of the ninth inning. To Chaz McCormick. Leclerc. Fires foul. Tipped into the
2: mix. The Rangers win their sixth straight postseason game. They beat the Astros 2-0 and take a 1-0
1: lead in this best of seven league championship series. After the game, Jordan Montgomery spoke with Jeff Passan. Jordan, six and a third shutout innings against a dangerous Astros lineup. What was working for you tonight?
4: Really had to have everything. I mean, they're such a good team over there. Put together such clean A.B.'s, um, never really an easy one, so you kind of got to throw everything into every quadrant.
0: Jordan, you had three at-bats against Jordan Alvarez. All three ended up with strikeouts on the curveball. Why was that pitch working
4: for you against him? Uh, I did a lot of work in. um, Such a dangerous hitter, man. He's a really, really good player. So um, really when I wanted it in the dirt, I had to get it there, and uh, luckily he expanded a lot. And your
0: bullpen, such a liability coming into September, but they stabilized two and two-thirds scoreless tonight to finish the shutout. What can you say about them? I always believe in them. Um, They had a little rough, rough time there, but um, the whole team's believed in them and uh, we got a bunch of horses down there. And Leoti Tavares, he's the number nine hitter in the lineup, Jordan, and yet he goes out and hits a home run tonight to give you an extra lead. How much did that cushion
4: help? It helped. I mean, every run you can get against uh, Verlanders is is huge. Um, I mean, a bunch of good arms over there. Our hitters put together a lot of good ABs and then grinded them out.
1: So Jordan Montgomery and the Rangers take a 1-0 lead over the Houston Astros in Houston this start of the series. Bruce Bochy, the Rangers manager, talked about Jordan Montgomery and pitching coach Mike
5: Maddox. They've worked uh, together before, and uh, so there's a – Uh, sense of confidence, I think, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that Jordan has with Mike. And so, you know, the game planning, things like that, uh, you know, they're so prepared, and and that's always uh, uh, nice to have when you make a trade or something, it makes that uh, transition so much easier. And so, you know, from day one, he's uh, been very comfortable here.
1: Dusty Baker, the Astros manager, was asked the question after the game about whether he should have opted to pinch hit for Maldonado in that fourth inning
5: too early
4: because it was uh I mean we struck out before that with runners on base prior to Maldonado also um you know your Don had a tough night um and that's in the fourth inning and you don't change your catcher in the middle of the game like that in a two to nothing game so no that was that was uh, far too early.
1: Dusty was asked about that Altuve play in the eighth inning.
4: I mean that was close you know because he had his foot still on the bag you know and uh that was a matter of interpretation but, but his left foot was past the bag and so um you know it didn't work
1: justin berlander was asked about his performance in game one of the lcs
2: so so i uh i was a bit erratic uh the first couple innings um you know especially fastball control i uh, thought it cleaned up as the game went along um you know, uh, kind of started to find my groove there. Last few innings, uh, obviously, one bad pitch it resulted in another run to Tavares there. But um, you know, overall, I thought um, as the game went along, it got uh, it got better and better.
1: Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals on the hottest tickets. Experience it live. And the hottest ticket in Philadelphia today will be game one of the National League Championship Series with the Phillies playing host of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Those two teams were working out on Sunday. Bryce Harper spoke with the reporters. I'm so thankful um, that I'm able to play this game. I'm so thankful to be able to have these moments
3: and these opportunities. And, you know, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like you know, growing up and playing the game of baseball. And when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, I played in so many big tournaments and big lights. And I mean, you guys couldn't imagine the pressure of the situations or going to Juco early and having everybody in the world relying on you to be the number one pick. That was hard, you know, 17 years old, 16 years old, trying to be the number one pick, knowing that if you're not, you're a failure. So that's pressure, trying to make all the money you can to get your family out of an area or, you know,
1: set them up for life. That's, that's pressure. This is all cake, man. This is so much fun. This is what it's all about. So I'm guessing, Taylor, that that was probably not from the press conference on Sunday. That sounds more like the interview we did with Pat McAfee the other day. Or else maybe when he was in the press room yesterday, they had someone there, you know, with a little uh, audio board that was doing the background as he talked with, uh, you know, adding to the drama. (laughs)
0: I think, uh, you know, maybe there was some, a little production added afterwards, but I'm, it was from the news conference though. You know, he was, he was going down down memory lane. Yeah. 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 So, Hey, that's nice perspective going into LCS and really talking about real life. What really, what real pressure is versus what he's feeling right now. I thought that was cool.
1: Yeah, no. And as we've talked about many times in the podcast, really feel like Bryce, it's been cool to see his evolution from a teenager uh, into a dad, into an adult in the middle of his career. Now, Tori Lavello, the Diamondbacks manager, talked about the Phillies. I, you know, I know that he's pitched here for the past several years,
3: and he's had an army of people come out and support him. And it's well documented that, that, that this this was where he grew up. The one thing that I know I can say about Zach Gallen is, is he's good as anybody I've been around. It's slowing down the moment and not being too overexcited you can tell how his mind works and how he is he he is very um very slow moving and process oriented with everything that he says does and and executes
1: on a daily basis yeah that was him talking about zach allen who starts game one for the diamondbacks in the league championship series he grew up in the philadelphia area taylor what else you got
0: Buster, a new episode of the College Game Day podcast. The guys were out in Seattle for Washington, Oregon, an awesome game. Washington prevails. They're up to number five in the AP poll. I'm going to hear the guys, what their thoughts were on the game and the scene in Seattle for game day. I saw Reese Davis catching fish on the set, so uh, I'm very curious as to whether that fish ruined one of his beloved suits. That's very important to him. So College Game Day podcast, we'll get all those answers there. You can listen to it on this podcasting platform or on YouTube.
1: So, you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit. To get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, moxidectin, and pyrantel chewable tablets. Nexgard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Seam hands rejoice. This is Timmy Time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkchin. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. And Tim Kirkson covers baseball for ESPN. And during this round, Tim, that means working on radio with Carl Rabich and with Eduardo Perez, which means you guys laughing for three hours,
3: huh? Uh, we usually laugh for three
1: hours, Buster, and that's the beauty of it.
3: However, this is a playoff game. And there weren't a whole lot of laughs last night because that was a really close, really interesting, really good in its own right baseball game. So there was not a lot of yucking up last night. Plus, with the, on the radio buster, as you know, and with the pitch clock, there's not a whole lot of time to tell a bunch of stories in between pitches because you can't miss a pitch. And there's only 15 seconds. So we kept it pretty straight. We had a couple of laughs. But in the end, we did a really interesting baseball game last night. And
1: that made it so much fun. You know, it's funny you say that. And I want to talk to you more about the game, of course. And uh, we got the Phillies and Diamondbacks start their series later today. We get news about Kim Ang leaving the Marlins. uh, And uh, we'll, we'll get into all that. But it's funny you say that because I found myself sort of shifting what I do working sidelines uh, on Sunday night baseball because of the pitch clock. You know, normally in the past, you'd prepare, you know, four or five stories. You'd hear about, well, this person, uh, you know, the, the the career arc changed when their grandmother had a conversation with them, uh, you know, when they were uh, 15 years old. story, You know, very extensive stories. I'm like, I can't tell those stories anymore. Like I need to be able to drop in essentially in eight to 10 seconds between pitches when I can push the button, put myself on air and maybe add to the conversations they're having those extensive stories that like uh Vin Scully was famous for that he would tell between pitches, they ain't happening anymore. Right. It, it has really changed the way
3: that I've had to be do my job as an analyst from the booth first on TV, but even more so on the radio because the radio people are great. But the one thing they will not allow is you to miss a pitch. So you cannot be babbling on some lengthy story and miss a pitch when the game's on the radio. So I've had to adjust. I tell stories for a living, Buster, and I've had to really adjust on when to tell it and when not to tell it. And if there's not enough time, it just doesn't get in.
1: Yeah, our conversation since the pitch clock was implemented this spring has been, look, the games are the same length in terms of 54 outs and nine innings, uh, but you essentially have 30 minutes being cut out of games. And guess what? I think even Vince Scully might have struggled with that. I think Vince Scully would have had a hard time getting all his stories in.
3: Right. I have to wait for the perfect foul ball that I know is going to hold things up a little bit. Otherwise, I have to say, and you're right, Vin was the greatest. Vin would start a story, and it's a 12-pitch at bat, and he can tell the three-and-a-half-minute story that no one else can tell because he gets a 12-minute at bat. It doesn't 12-pitch at bat. It doesn't work that way anymore. I've had to make the adjustment, and
1: I'm all good. All right, the story about last night's game was the Texas Rangers pitching, starting with Jordan Montgomery. Uh, Tim, he's a free agent this fall. I think the timing for his ascension as one of the best pitchers in baseball, uh, you know, with him preparing to go to the open market, is pretty perfect.
3: It, it is perfect, Buster. And I've covered all three of his postseason starts this year. He pitched brilliantly against the Rays and just as good last night. And He is a great competitor. I'm still not, I still don't understand why the Yankees let him go as easily as they did. And the, the uh, Ranger guys will tell you how good he has been. This is the best he's ever pitched in his life right now. He was good with the Yankees. He was better with the Cardinals. This is the best he's ever been last Five starts the regular season or so, two runs in 27 innings, and now two great starts out of three in the postseason. And at his age and with everything else, he's going to make a lot of money in free agency because there's not going to be a whole lot of starting pitching out there.
1: He's going to get paid, and he's going to deserve it. What do you feel like he did well last night against the Astros?
3: Well, he's got that slider that is so good, and that I mean, the curveball that's so good, and the sinker that's so good. But as Eduardo pointed out multiple times last night, he worked the inside part of the plate, and he worked up too. And that that's been his big trend recently. He throws a sinker sound doesn't sound right up in the strike zone occasionally, kind of a trend in the game. But he was up and he was in on every right-handed hitter last night and that was what was the secret to him plus he throws a ton of strikes he's
1: always ahead in the count and that was the secret for him last night uh it felt like that his handling of Jordan Alvarez was absolutely crucial uh cuz Alvarez was ridiculously hot in the, in the uh, in the previous round he had four homers <laughs> he had six hits he was crazy and last night it felt like that Jordan Montgomery very precisely followed a plan.
3: Yeah, and Eduardo mentioned a couple times during the broadcast, and we'll have to check this out today. That Jordan was not in the clubhouse before the game. Eduardo always stops to talk to him. He wasn't even there, and then he did not come out to the the baseline for the announce. You know, for the starting lineup
1: announcements before the game. And which I've never seen, by the way, except for, as you know, starting pitchers who are off doing their own thing or the catcher. I've never heard of
3: that. And I was very confused. So that's the first question we have to ask when we get to the ballpark tonight. Was he okay? Was he sick? Is there something wrong? Plus, he chased two balls out of the strike zone that he for strike three that he just never does so let's hope for his sake everything's okay but obviously this is a different offensive team without that guy in the middle of the order
1: what do you think of justin Verlander pitching against the uh, rangers
3: well he pitched pretty well he, you know he got in at a little trouble the first you know, second and third innings, but he righted himself. But then the Odie Tavares hit a homer. And again, Buster, this is what we keep saying about the Rangers. They got they can beat you one through nine in the order. The nine hitter hit a rocket into the right field seats. And, he you know, they get a little, you know, a little help offensively. Verlander has another good postseason start. But it wasn't good enough because, A, they didn't score enough runs, and Jordan Montgomery pitched even better.
1: And Evan Carter. What can you tell us about Evan Carter? I know you can't tell stories uh, in between pitches during the games, but Evan Carter, is he like five years old, Tim? It feels like he just—he was probably at his high school prom three years ago. He he was
3: at his high school prom, and that's the point. A 21-year-old was the best player on the field again last night. Keep in mind, Buster, he's a center fielder and they moved him to the corner, and that's a hard transition to make when you've played center field your whole life. He played great in the outfield last night, which was not a surprise. He made the play into the corner, and then he took the the double extra base hit away from Bregman with, to his left. He made two other good defensive plays. He hit, it got the biggest hit of the game, and – made two great base running plays. He turned that single into a double. He's the only guy on the Rangers that can turn that single into a double. Started the big rally, scored a run after getting a great read on the line drive to center field. I'm telling you, he is a unique baseball player because he's 21, and he knows how to play defense. He knows how to run the bases, and his – Plate discipline is like almost no 21-year-old I've ever met. You know, I told you his his nickname in the minor leagues was full count because he's always going to a full count. First 75 plate appearances in the big leagues, he went to a full count 20 times. He's done it eight times already in this postseason. It's amazing. And those guys told me when he showed up, everything changed for the Rangers. This is early September. And not only did he have an OPS over a thousand in September, he's been even
1: better in October. And he was involved in that uh, pivotal defensive play yesterday where he makes the catch in left field. and i I will say, I mean, I he is so comfortable playing left field defensively right away. And he had an impact last night with all the ground he covered. In fact, I can't remember a left fielder playing in that ballpark with all of its nooks and crannies more comfortably. I don't think the catch that he made was necessarily spectacular. I think it, off the bat, he thought that the ball was gone when uh, when Bregman hit it, uh, and then he winds up throwing back the infield. And Jose Altuve does not retag, as replay showed, going back to first base. I, I know that it, it, you know in some places, especially in social media, it was like, "What a terrible mistake! A brutal mistake!" I just think it was this weird thing that he didn't retag right when he was around the base. I can understand why he was a little bit confused as he did that. You could see it in Jose's face. It was like, oh, man, when he was called out, he knew that he probably screwed up.
3: Right. Look, you can't make that mistake in a playoff game, no matter who you are. You can't make that mistake when you are a veteran player like that. But I'm with you. It's not like he completely ran three steps towards third base, and then forgot to re-tag on the back. He thought he kind kind of had the bag straddled. And since one foot went towards third base, the other foot was close to the bag. Uh, It it was a correct call by the umpire. It was a mistake by Altuve. But I've seen a million worse
1: base-running mistakes than that in my career. So I picked the Astros go to the World Series in part – because I feel like that, you know, all that experience will manifest. Tim, in this series, I don't think it matters. Like, I'm looking at the two teams. I don't think it matters that, uh, you know, the Astros have, you know, World Championship ring from last year because of the groups they're facing. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, Corey Seeger's the leader of the other team, and he's played in a ton of postseason games. Nate Ivaldi, who's pitching tonight as – you know, 53 innings in the postseason and a really good record. They have other guys who've been around. I I'm with you. I don't think the lack of, you know, experience at this level for some of the Rangers is really affecting them because their clubhouse is filled with veteran guys who know how to play the game. And again, Buster, this is what Chris Young did so beautifully. He filled that room with good players, but culture, you know, clubhouse culture guys too, character guys in the clubhouse, Robbie Grossman, Evaldi, people like that. And it really, really shows. I'm so impressed with the the way the Rangers have played in this postseason. It is a really it sounds corny, a really close knit group with great chemistry.
1: Look, there'll be no panic in the Astros in a game two that they're playing at home, given that experience we talked about. But Tim on paper to me this is a bad pitching matchup for the Astros cuz Framber Valdez does not look anything close to what we've seen to him be in the past and Nathan Eovaldi is starting uh for Texas. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I'm a little worried about Valdez. He, you know, he had a 4.66 ERA the second half after having a 2.61 the first half. I saw him pitch Buster the final Wednesday of the regular season. In Seattle, and he got squeezed a couple times early. He got agitated; it affected him. He he kind of kind of pouted, walking around the mound and everything else. And they had to come out and calm him down, which they have to do occasionally. With him, but he's going to have to be at his best. He's going to have to throw that elite curveball and that great sinker if he's going to win this game. But right now, I think the pitching matchup favors Ivaldi tonight. Again, he's been brilliant in two postseason starts. No walks, fifteen strikeouts, two runs allowed. He's been great. And Brad Miller of the of the Rangers told me. If I had any pitcher to choose to pitch a big game for me out of our hmm. clubhouse, that's who I would take,
1: Nate Evaldi. Well, and with 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 uh, with Fromber, look, I mean, it sounds like from you know talking with sources. You know, he threw a cut fastball. began to throw a cut fastball. You've heard this story before. Guy throws a cutter, and he starts to lose the feel on his his uh, his fastball. That seems to be what happened. Like he did. Frommer in that last start he had against the Twins seemed to have no feel for his two seamer, which you know what I know was his bread and butter. Like that was the pitch that he relied on, and then his swing and miss pitch was the curveball. And early on, he didn't have that either. Right.
3: Well, when you throw a sinker forty seven percent of the time and suddenly you can't locate it, you're in some trouble. And his curveball he's throwing, you know, twenty one percent of the time. If you lose a field for that, you're in trouble. I think he's gonna pitch well tonight. He's one of the best ground ball pitchers in the game, but he had better be good, because I'm telling you, the Rangers are a really interesting offensive team buster. They led the, team, the league in runs scored. They led the league in walks, and yet they are so free-swinging and disciplined At the same time, Marcus Simeon, leadoff hitter, will go up there and hack right away. Corey Seager will swing at the first pitch every time if you let him, and yet he's walked 11 times in the postseason. They're a very, very interesting offensive team, and and Framber had better be good tonight. Otherwise,
1: they're going to score some more runs. All right, Phillies, Diamondbacks. Uh, Tell me if you see a path for the Diamondbacks to get through the series, because as i Said to you uh, last week, I just walked away from seeing the Phillies at the end of the year saying, nobody's beating this team.
3: Look, I think the Phillies are probably the team to beat out of the four that are left. I love the way the Phillies play. But look, this year and this postseason has proven to us, Buster, that anything is possible. So I am not going to discount the Diamondbacks after the way they went in and just took it to the Dodgers. I just love to see a young, hungry team like that show up and say, we're coming right at you with our young, hungry, athletic players. And that's exactly what they did. Now, will that work against the Phillies? Again, I don't think the Diamondbacks are going to win this series. But when people say it's going to be a sweep or something, they're not giving enough respect to Tori Lovello and that staff that has put together a really interesting club. So, But, again, the Phillies – can really pitch, they hit the ball out of the ballpark. They're a better team than they were at this time last year. Bullpen's
1: better, and Trey Turner adds another level. And the home crowd is a thing, it feels like. You know, in the time that you and I have covered baseball, I felt that uh, in the Metrodome, remember when the Twins in 87 and 91, that home ballpark was was a thing. The Yankees, during their championship run, it felt like that their home field advantage was a thing. This feels like a thing. I was talking with a staffer with another team. And he said he looked down the, the row of players that uh, his team had, and he was looking specifically at the young guys when they were introduced pregame. And all the fans, you know, every time that someone's name is mentioned, the Phillies fans are all yelling, you suck, and yeah. you're terrible. And the negative feedback from that crowd, which goes on for three hours, this person who is very circumspect was like, "It's it's a thing. It's a
3: thing. The loudest crowd I've ever seen, it was in the Metrodome in 87 and even more so in 91. Steve Rush of Sports Illustrated, we were at SI together. I, I was sitting right next to him. I couldn't even hear him. As he spoke to me, that's how loud it was. But that place was indoors. This is maybe, maybe the largest, uh, the loudest outdoor crowd I've heard. And it is, to me at least, clearly the biggest home field advantage is when the Phillies play a home game. It gives them an edge that other teams have, don't have. I mean, other teams have great crowds, but I don't think there's anything quite like the Philly crowd at home this
1: year. And before you go, I want to ask you about Kim Ng leaving the Marlins. Uh, You know, the initial report was from Craig Mish was that it was a a case where she turned down the mutual option to come back. I'd been hearing rumblings during the summertime that the Marlins leadership was looking to move on. Uh, I think she, you know, dropped into a situation where it was ugly within the within the Marlins organization. This is when Derek Jeter was still there, and, and he had a lot to do with bringing her in. But there was a lot of cleanup that needed to be done during her time there. And as she leaves, Tim, they made the playoffs. So it's a head-scratcher for me, and you can understand why a lot of people in that organization would be unhappy that when they finally break through and make the playoffs, this is the situation they wind up with with Kim leaving.
3: Yeah, I think you have to put two and two together and say Derek Jeter, who was determined to make his mark as an executive, just got up and left. And now Kim Hang is essentially done the same thing, look, Buster, being a GM today is harder than it's ever been before in baseball history. Running an organization, all the people you work for, dealing with owners, uh, she did a really good job. But if if you're not happy in that job and it's a really hard job, it's just time to, to move on. And I was surprised to see this because it looked like the Marlins had broken through because it's the first time they've made the playoffs in a full season since 2003. And she did a great job. I'm surprised she stepped down. But again, when the inner workings aren't to your liking, it's better to step down and
1: move on. Then I don't know the details of if she was offered an extension or was that, that extension offer. My guess is that the extension offer she got from the Marlins was pitiful. Okay that it would be really almost beneath the job that she did because she's demonstrated, you know, they don't make the playoffs this year. uh, If without the trades that she made uh, adding Josh Bell, uh, you know, adding help uh, with the offense, with Berger, they don't make the playoffs if not for the move she makes. I think she's in a position going forward. You would assume that some other team would say, look, she's got, she's proven that she can do this job.
3: Right. Again, relationship with the ownership from the GM to the owner is absolutely critical now more than ever. And if you look and see, well, I'm not going to maybe get the support that I need here, then it's time to move on. And maybe, maybe that was part of this.
1: All right, Tim. Thanks for doing this, and have fun with Eduardo and uh, and Carl. I know you guys will have a blast. And in between, you'll do a you'll do a broadcast as well. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Buster.
3: Talk to you soon.
1: For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. Call one 800 direct tv or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Ross Rippling pitches for the San Francisco Giants. And, Ross, I, I wasn't aware of this uh, as we got started. You live in Houston. You said you're about 10 minutes away from the ballpark there, and which means – a lot of stuff going on, you may might make your way to the ballpark at some point during this Rangers Nastro series,
4: yeah, i mean man i'm I'm like raised Texan, Texan through and through this series might burn the state to the ground. I grew up ten minutes from the Rangers Stadium and now I live ten minutes from minute made um you know, so I grew up watching like A-Rod and Juan Gonzalez, Pudge Rodriguez, and then those World Series teams that lost back-to-back years, 11 and 12, talking about the Rangers. And now, um, you know, maybe a, a real bri- rivalry starting in the state here. So, yeah, I might try and get over there if I can.
1: So tell me just what that – because people have made reference to this. I've seen a lot of a lot of stories about the way that the, the two franchises, the two cities don't necessarily see eye-to-eye. Tell me a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's just – you know, it's probably the same way like Pittsburgh talks – you know, crap about, uh, 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 <laughs> blanking on what the other city is the in Phillies. Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> the Phillies. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, ah, Dallas is better. No, Houston is better. Uh, you know, explain why it, it's, that's, uh, I'm sure that is every big city in every state around the country, but you know, Texas, uh, we have a lot of pride in our state and in our cities. So it's just a, a, a rivalry that's probably as old as time as far as which is better, Dallas or Houston.
1: Now, uh, with the game last night, uh, you know, Jordan Montgomery was terrific, as we've talked about with players. Look, I didn't play, and you did, okay? I made it through high school baseball, and that was it. Tell me, you as someone who plays the game, what did you see in Jordan Montgomery last night?
4: Just crisp. Um, you know, I think they, they panned to Jonah Heim at some point, in, like the seventh inning. There was, like, a real quick interview with Rosenthal, and they were like, you know, what did you see from Jordan Montgomery? And he was like, you know, he mixed in four pitches when he wanted it and where he wanted to. And it was, it was that, I mean, I, I totally agree. It was, he, he just seemed in command of all quadrants with his fastball. So keeping him off balance and he obviously has the good breaking balls and mixing some change ups. and that's, you know, he got traded over. So the Astros hadn't necessarily seen him a ton. So he had that to an advantage versus, um, you know, like a Vernlander who those Rangers guys had seen a, a bunch and didn't hardly get a swing and miss, I think through the first time through the lineup. So I just think Montgomery, um, had some things working in his favor, and then he's just crisp. You know, he he brought his A game on the big stage and uh, on the road and, and one of the craziest atmos- atmospheres in playoff baseball and and uh, went out there and, and gave his team victory. It was impressive to watch.
1: And it feels like he's with a manager who's going to see and value what he is versus what he isn't. I was thinking about this last night when the Yankees, you know, traded him over, uh, you know, last year for Harrison Bader to the Cardinals – You know, Brian Cashman, their general manager, made it clear that their feeling was looking ahead at the playoffs last year that Montgomery would not be part of the rotation. And and look, the Yankees had a really good team then. But I thought about that in in the sort of through the portal through uh, of where baseball is right now. And, you know, Jordan Montgomery is not like one of these guys blowing 96, 97, 98 miles per hour. And I don't think Bruce Bochy cares about that. I think he's only going to look at results. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, I completely agree. You know, uh, Bochy, he's an old school guy, caught in the big leagues back in the day, has obviously managed to extreme success. He knows what it takes to survive in October and to win in October. And when he sees a guy that's a competitor like Montgomery obviously is, I mean, you can see him up there. Breathing and, and competing, and, and, you know, he's I think he's from, like, South Carolina. You know, you just kind of tell he's just, like, a, a broody dude up there. And I bet Bochy just loves that, eats it up. You know, I think some of these guys in the playoffs talking about, like, a Merrill Kelly with the Diamondbacks, he's not going to blow you well, blow you away. He's, you know, low 90s with a good changeup, can sink the ball and and go up in the zone, all the stuff. It, you know, it, pitching takes over in October. Look at the Braves. It's so hard to slug your way to a World Series. Um, so when you get a guy that can throw anything in any count and keep the best hitters off balance, uh, making a deep run in the playoffs, that's, that's what a good manager is going to go to.
1: You played and I didn't tell me what you saw and how he pitched <laughs> to Jordan Alvarez, who obviously he was hitting a home run like every other plate appearance in that first series against the twins.
4: Yeah, man. You know, he has the advantage of being a lefty, uh, even though Jordan rakes everybody, uh, you could tell they wanted to do some work in. So every time he was going in, he didn't necessarily get it up and in, but he never missed over the plate. So when he was going in, he got it on the black inside and it just didn't seem like Jordan could quite, even the ones he missed down, couldn't quite get the barrel out down to those heaters, like down and in. And then, um, you know, mixed in some breaking balls, even some breaking balls that didn't necessarily get down and away. You saw Smoltz talking like this one has to get down and away, down and away. And he left it like almost for a ball in on that first at bat and Jordan swung and missed at it. I think that you know, he just did enough stuff in and then threw his breaking ball through a similar tunnel where Jordan just wasn't comfortable with what he was seeing and wasn't able to, um, you know, make hard contact. So props to Jordan for, for keeping basically one of the best October hitters for the last five, seven years off balance there.
1: Yeah, I loved uh, John Smoltz's analysis of where he wanted to pitch him, where they put the baseball in the spot that he would aim for. Because I think it, uh, you know, for, for all those uh, all of us who didn't play, it was very specific information about what they're trying to do, and it was neat to see often Jonah Heim basically setting up his target exactly where Smolty was talking about. Um, you played and I didn't. Corey Seager, right now, if you're facing him, what are you trying to do?
4: Corey is so dangerous because he is just hacking from the start. That's obviously well documented. That's you know he is so aggressive o oh, o oh, that it's basically all anyone talks about when he steps into the box because. It's true. Uh, and that is very, I don't know if intimidating is the right word, but it just kind of like keeps you off balance as a pitcher. It's like, man, I almost like have to throw an O two 2 pitch right here. And I'm not even into the at bat because not only does he swing, he does major damage. Oh, oh. And so you just, and there's really no safe zones. Like you can throw something up and away, hold a double in the left field gap. You can throw something down and in, He might pull it for a homer or he might just do what he did and, take a Justin Berlander curveball through the four hole and he's on first base and and the first pitch he sees at the ALCS, you know? So he just, um, I think the first pitch is very important. You got to go somewhere where you feel safe and then you got to get into the at bat. We know he can walk. So it's crazy that he can be super aggressive and then walk five times in a game. So he's just like such an anomaly. I think it's just, um, go to the safest zones and try and keep him in the ballpark is what I would do, honestly.
1: Yeah, it is kind of nuts to think that someone who's that aggressive at the plate and yet, what, he had 11 walks and two rounds of postseason coming into this this series against the Astros. It's kind of crazy He uh, he's in that spot, uh, but it says a lot about how good he is. If you were pitching against the Phillies and they start this series today against the Diamondbacks, how would you pitch to Bryce Harper, who was another superstar incredibly hot in that uh, most recent series?
4: Yeah, man. You know, we we faced Harper in August. I think I don't necessarily remember the scouting report. There's not a lot of safe zones against him either. Um, I think you can throw fastballs up and have some success, but you can't live there because he's obviously one of the best hitters in the world. Um, so he can go up there and get it if you just live there. So you still got to mix it up. You got to mix in some change ups, thrown if up you're a right hand. You know, like uh, Merrill Kelly and. And, um, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I'm just blanking on names here. What's They're the gallon. Oh, gallon gallon are going to have to do some stuff, you know, down and away, try and get him to expand and then maybe mix some stuff up. And then he's, he's, he's too good to, to be predictable. So you got to, but luckily those guys have good pitch mixes where they can mix sequences when they face him more than once. And, um, you know, he's going to hit the ball hard at least once. I can promise you that. And you just hope you got a guy standing there. That's, 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 uh, that's going to be part of the plan.
1: So I talked with a staffer uh, of another team who's played a series against the Phillies the last couple of years. And he said that Philly crowd, the impact is real. And he talked about when they had the pregame introductions at the outset of the playoffs in Philadelphia, looking down the line and seeing all these young players who hadn't been in this situation before. And you get all the negative reinforcement from Philly Sands, basically yelling, you suck to everybody who's there. And that continues over the course of three hours. From your perspective, uh, tell me about, you know, whether you agree. Do you think the impact of that Philly crowd is
4: real? So it's definitely real. It lives up to the hype. You know, I think there's a lot of fan bases, maybe the Yankees, where you go there. And, like, sometimes it's whatever. Sometimes it's in your face. Sometimes they're crossing the line. Sometimes it's actually not, you know, not even that intimidating at all. Philly seems to always live up to the hype, in my opinion, even like a Tuesday game. Against the Blue Jays in the last, you know, year or two, when we go there, you're gonna have somebody yell at you. It might be a seven year old girl. Like I promise you, like somebody <laughs> is going gonna come at your throat. Um, so I do think it matters. I really do. I think that that fan base um, absolutely plays a key. What I will say is, I am extremely impressed with this Diamondbacks team. I don't know that they care. I think that they are just out there looking to absolute wreak. Absolutely wreak havoc on the bases. Uh, they want to get on base, steal bases. They want to hit and run. They want to bunt. They want to put so much pressure on your catcher and on your defense. And then all the while they're going to play elite defense in the outfield. They just press copy paste on Corbin Carroll with like four other dudes, Alec Thomas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think they're going to be ready for it. And and obviously they want to get off to a hot start like they get against the Dodgers, uh, where they can kind of maybe take that crowd out of it. But uh, I tell you what, man, I'm not going to bet against this Diamondbacks team.
1: Ross, tell me the uh, the most memorable thing uh, that, you, that a fan yelled at you or fans yelled at you that stuck with you, whether you thought, man, that is way over the line, or you thought, that's pretty inventive. That's not bad.
4: Oh, man. There's some that are usually pretty good. Uh, they should stick out in my head more, but you obviously remember the ones where they maybe crossed the line a little bit, and it actually happened in Philly, which is probably why I just used the reason seven-year-old girl. One time we were in the bullpen, <laughs> And a, a young girl was chirping at our bullpen coach for the Dodgers at the time, like calling him over, wait, just hammering him, hammering our bullpen coach for like three innings. And finally he had had enough and he looked up and he said something to the dad along the lines of like, man, you must be really proud. And that just set the dad off. So now you got like the dad and his friends chirping at him for the rest of the six innings. And just, I mean, it, it, usually guys get tired, right? Especially if you, like if you don't acknowledge them, they'll be like, "All right, we'll we'll phase out and and maybe go hit on someone else." These these dudes just were relentless for nine innings on our poor, poor bullpen coach who just didn't deserve it at all. So uh, you know, it's just stuff like that that sticks out in your head. you are just like, man, these guys will just not give it up.
1: So I want to ask you about your perspective because you played and I didn't about Justin Verlander. I think one of the cool things and look, I had a conversation with Justin you know ten twelve years ago when he talked about wanting to pitch till he's 45 years old. Nolan Ryan was his big hero in life. I think he's trying to emulate what Nolan Ryan did, and he said that what he admired about Nolan was that uh, he was a power pitcher throughout his entire career. And Justin is still that. You saw last night, you know, hit 95, 96, 97. But it does feel like he he's really become so good at making in-game adjustments depending on what's working. in the game against – he started against the Twins, for example, that last start – He had a terrific curveball, and he didn't have a great fastball, and so he went with that curveball so much. Last night, you know, uh, it felt like that he used his slider a lot more early in the game. Uh, You played and I didn't. Tell me what your view of Verlander is as a pitcher.
4: Yeah, it's extremely impressive. It really is. You know, yes, he can still probably overpower a decent amount of big league hitters with his fastball, but he's got elite breaking balls. And, you know, he is a – an elite pitcher with stuff who now has whatever it is, 16 years of experience under his belt. And he can just pick guys apart. You know, every amount of information is out there. I'm sure he's a smart dude. So he can digest that information and he can go out there and execute a scatter report with elite stuff and elite experience. That's super intimidating. He also has the name behind him, right? You think like of a Scherzer or a Kershaw or a Verlander on the mound. So hitters are already like in a different mindset going in face. I'm like, ah, damn, we got Verlander tonight. And then, the most impressive thing I saw, and Smoltz uh, commented on it as well, it was uh, Nate Lowe at bat, 3 2 towards the end of the game, sixth, maybe seventh inning. And 3 2, he dotted a 95 up and in heater on the corner, and the umpire gave it to him, probably a 50 50 ball, and the umpire banged him out. And to go the man on first that he already walked, and he goes up and in with 95 to an elite spot, and just hammers, this, hammers that location. And that's just. Impressive, man. Absolutely impressive that he can pitch like that on his, you know, coming up on 95, 100 pitches in game one of an ALCS. Uh, you know, you really can't say enough good things about him Man continues to just be ultra impressive.
1: Well, really, that says to me about about uh, Justin is and I've sort of seen this in his career over time, you know, for years uh, he was able to bully hitters. There seems to be a great humility within it, within him in terms of when to make adjustments, like, it feels like that he's incredibly self-aware about where his stuff is. Am I wrong?
4: No, I think you're spot on. I really do. You know, I think that he is, he, he doesn't seem to be, um, uh, uh, like, hard-headed about it. It's not like, oh, I got to get my fastball working, or I got to establish my fastball, or this guy's a, a bad fastball hitter. I have to beat him with fastballs. It's like, no, if my fastball's not working today, like you just said against the Twins, I'm going to go to my other weapons, which also happen to be elite, and I'm going to trust that they're still good enough to get a good slider hitter out. Here's a slider, you know, and I'm going to execute a location and he's going to hit the ball on the ground. I think that he is, that just comes with experience and obviously confidence. He should be the most confident guy in the world. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. So when you have those things working for you, I think it's probably easier to make in-game adjustments, knowing that you have other weapons to, to count on that can get guys out in an elite level.
1: Last one for you. There's been so much conversation, you know, during this postseason, really last few years about the idea of scripted pitching plans. Uh, As I process this more and I've thought about it more, the more I thought, I think it's nuts to a high degree because, you know, through the years when I talk to starting pitchers like yourself after a game and I'll ask you, hey, uh, you know, how did you feel during the course of this game? And what I hear, the feedback I get is, well, you know what, I was in the bullpen. And I didn't have my fastball or I didn't have my curveball. I didn't feel great. Uh, And so I made this adjustment. And I feel like these, you know, pitching plans that are scripted out at say two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, where you're looking at matchups, they almost become obsolete in my eyes because there's so many variables at play, which is why, you know, when I, you know, watch a a guy like Bruce Bochy manage Cody Bradford in relief against the Orioles. That makes a lot more sense to me that you watch the pitchers and see what you have that day while maybe having a plan in mind. uh, But at the same time, being willing to deviate from the script all along, just generally speaking, how do you feel about these scripted pitching plans?
4: So I was a part of a lot of them this year in San Francisco. Um, You know, we weren't a, a stout offensive team. So we scripted a lot of the quote unquote run prevention side of the game to try and minimize runs, you know, because we feel like we need to keep it at three or below to get to really give our offense a chance to win. A given night. And so I was a part, of a lot of them. And I agree with you that sometimes you would make moves that just didn't necessarily feel like they made a lot of sense. Like sometimes Manaya would open a game and the plan was to have me piggyback and it would all of a sudden be a two run game. And you would make sense to go to like a Rogers brother there, but I was supposed to come in and I would come in and I gave up a three run homer to Salvador Perez and we lost the game. You know, like that one sticks out to me and uh, that one hurt because like, I feel like I shouldn't have been in that, spot and I gave up the game and that's a really hard place to be. So, I think it's okay to have a general script, but I think you got to be able to deviate from it if the game calls for it. And um, you know, the one that's taken a lot of heat is that Blue Jays one with Barrios who looked so good and they chose to bring in Kikuchi to kind of turn the lineup over, maybe get some of the lefties out, and they didn't score. So, they lost 2 to nothing, but the pitching was still kind of the narrative around that game and and I'm with you. It's it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's awesome to have a manager that has some feel and can really feel out his starter and how to use his bullpen. But at the end of the day, a good matchup is a good matchup. And if you can maneuver the chess pieces to get to that matchup, look at the Rays. You're going to have elite success if you have the right personnel to be able to exploit those matchups. So I don't know. That's kind of a long-winded way to say I'm kind of in the middle of it all. But there's still some teams that are on one side of the spectrum, and there's some teams like the Giants for us this year that were probably on the farther end of the spectrum of having a script and sticking to it.
1: It sounds like, I mean, you prefer that there be a constant conversation between the pitchers, you know, day-to-day and sort of have, you know, what what feels appropriate given the matchups.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, there's also, I I think some teams are very good or even um, just have the ability to be a little bit more forward thinking of like, okay, you know, we need to win this game tonight, obviously, but we also need to keep guys healthy for the next couple weeks, blah, 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 versus, you know, some teams that are like, all right, we're going to do everything we can to win tonight, no matter what, whatever the matchup is we're going to go exploit that matchup and then we'll deal with tomorrow. When we get there, whether guys are beat up or need rest or need a down day or whatever tonight, we got to get, and we'll deal tomorrow, tomorrow. So it is, that's also a a varying strategy that I've seen throughout um, my years in the big leagues.
1: All right, Ross. Well, thanks for your time with this. I appreciate you doing it.
4: Yeah, Buster. Thanks for having me, man.
1: This is the numbers game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing? Two playoff games today for you.
5: I'm doing great. I know we only have a few days left where this is possible. Have to savor it. so very excited for today. All
1: right. Uh, Sarah, before we uh, get into the numbers game, we had a bleacher tweet, which I think you can answer better than I can. Go ahead, Taylor. Our pal Amy Chapman writes in, I always check
0: on wins and strikeout stats for my faves, Scherzer and Verlander, and notice that postseason stats don't count into their overall stats. Why is that? It doesn't seem like the best way to see the overall arc of a player's career.
1: Yeah. So, Sarah, what do you think about that?
5: Uh, I mean, no offense Amy, but I disagree. This is how it's always been stats records everything or regular season i mean one way to think of it is you know the numbers we know off the top of our head 755 for hand care and what have you those would all be different if we didn't include postseason as to why it is obviously i was not around when i assumed the Elias real made this decision but I think that if you think about it, it would disrupt a little bit more than maybe you think of off the bat. So this is one of those things as a researcher, I often have to remind people but I'm okay with this separation of it. Also thing, I mean, you know, there's so many players who get your opportunities to play an auction for whatever reason. Why give them less of a shot to accumulate? All right,
1: let's play the numbers game. Number three.
5: Number three is one. So the Texas Rangers have trailed at the end of only one full inning this entire postseason. That is time for the fewest full innings trailing after through a team's first six games of the single postseason with Cleveland in 2016. And next on the list is these 2023 Phillies, who have only trailed at the end of two full innings through six games. So looking ahead to this afternoon and tonight for both of those teams, the fewest through seven games is for number three teams. The 07 Rockies, 09 Yankees, and 2020 Braves. So, if either the Phillies or the Rangers have at the end of the day trailed through only four innings or fewer, they will join this list as well. Again, through seven innings.
0: Number two.
5: Number two is zero. So, again, back to the Rangers, did not allow a run last night. It was the six. It's shutout, pitched by a Bruce Bochy team in the postseason. Mm. This was, you know, 20 minutes after the game. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, hey, Madison Baumgartner did this a lot. We know the Rangers already had a shutout this postseason. We know that he's fifth in managerial wins. This was his 50th. But I wonder where he might rank in shutouts thrown by his team. That is five more than any other manager in postseason history. Bobby Cox made 11 shoutouts thrown by his teams. So just an incredible number for both.
0: Number one.
5: Number one is 15. So I love this thing with Evan Longoria. Looked it up a few nights ago. Can't wait to share it with people today. So Evan Longoria is appearing in the LCS the first time in 15 years, right? He was that youngster with the Rays back in 2008, and now here he is, the elder statesman with the Dynamax. He will become the fourth player to appear in the LCS round 15 years apart, so to return to it after 15 years. The other guy, where Bartola Coulomb, went 17 years. Chuck Stanley, who went in 16, and Dennis Martinez, who went in 16. So also notable that it will be the longest man for any position line as well.
1: So, uh, Sarah, just before we got started, word broke that Kim Ang is leaving her position as general manager of the Marlins. We don't know exactly what happened. We do know she turned down her mutual option for 2024. You know, my question, and I put this out to the Marlins, is was she offering an extension beyond that mutual option? You know, we'll see what was behind that. You know, hopefully it wasn't a case where they were like, yeah, okay, we'll pick up the option, but we're not willing to talk about an extension even after the Marlins made the playoffs you know, for the first time in two decades. Um, uh, But I, I, you know, when you heard the news about Kim leaving the spot, I thought about you, of course, because we just talked about the University of Chicago connection, but also because when women get opportunities in the sport, you know, you'll tweet out uh, more please. And now you have a situation where Kim had success in this job and she leaves. What was your feeling when you heard of this?
5: I mean, I heard of it literally as I clicked log on to them to come talk to you. So I haven't seen all of the info, but my first thought was good for her to try to get something where she might feel she's in an even better situation. Again, I don't know the details of the negotiation or whatever as you alluded to, but very important thing for women who are in these sort of person, unique roles is also put for themselves as anyone else would. So if it is a situation where she wasn't offered an extension she was comfortable with, her turning that down, again, theoretically, is very important as well. And, you know, I mean, there is no question that that team made the playoffs because of those moves that she made throughout really the last year or so. We talked about this when we had that series, but the trade for Louisa Riles, the trades for Josh Bell and Jake Berger, everything that they did. I mean, she's quite the track record going. So, you know, my first immediate thought was, I can't wait to see what's next and I can't wait.
1: Yeah, we'll see. I'm assuming that she'll get another opportunity uh, you know, I know Marlins have lost a lot of money, uh, since, uh, Bruce Sherman bought that team. And, uh, you know, y- you hope that in an effort to hold a line that, uh, he didn't apply that, you know, to Kim. Uh, but as they say, we will get more information, uh, as we go forward. Alyssa Nakin gets an interview with the San Francisco Giants to be their manager. What did you think when you heard that?
5: I was very excited about that. Again, that was a good, more pleased moment. I mean, you know, Gabe Kapler, I thought, had a really strong group of coaches. And it was really exciting to see the Kai Correa interviewed recently as well. And I know Craig Albert, as the catching coach, interviewed, I believe, for the Cleveland job. I saw that reported. So I think it's a really good testament to what Kapler did in San Francisco, even if the managing, No, you know, ultimately he is no longer there. I think the fact that his coaching staff, which was written about so much back in 2021, when they had that big season, is getting all these interviews is really, really exciting. Of course, I mean, she should be getting an interview. I don't know if she'll get the job, but it's really good to see that they're taking her seriously in that light. And it was just really, really exciting to see that.
1: As you were talking uh, about that in San Francisco, I got a text that uh, from one source who said yes that Kim was offered an extension by the Marlins. Um, you know, I don't know the specifics of it, and I don't know if it represented, uh, um, you know, was reflective of of general managers with uh, with her time uh, in that job and with her success. So we'll we'll be learning more about that. Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks so
5: much for having me, Buster.
1: Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets
0: for Amundi. Blue Domer Dave writes, and Buster, do you think the AL teams will have a benefit in the World Series from having to travel so much less in the, so much less distance in the LCS or players? So used to cross country travel that extra days off would matter more like if one of the series goes five and the other goes seven.
1: Well, maybe if it was like Seattle and Miami or something like that, maybe that would be a factor. But I gotta say, I, I don't think so. And I just go back to, you know, that speech that I referenced that Dustin Pedroia gave to the Diamondbacks late in the year where he said, I don't want to hear about you being tired. What are you talking about? It's the playoffs. Like you fired up. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I will say this. I've talked to so many players through the years who talk about when the World Series is over, when their playoffs are over, they collapse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much <laughs> adrenaline and so much energy that they work with uh, through the playoffs. And then once it's over, Man, it's, uh, but for now, I think once the players are in it, I think they're fine.
0: Okay. Good perspective. Brian Stone King writes in curious as to why we never heard from Mike Scotia again. You never hear him mentioned for open jobs. Did he not embrace analytics? Is he just not interested anymore? He had some great success and then he disappeared.
1: The perspective or the general industry perspective on Soch, Mike Scotia was that he uh, was an old schooler and that they, Didn't necessarily think that he would embrace analytics. You know, who knows? Maybe as these managers cycle through, because I I think the industry assumed that Dusty Baker was probably done. I know, even as someone who's known uh, Bruce Bochy for a lot of years, that he probably that I I thought that he was probably done. He comes back, Dusty comes back. Maybe someone will reach out to Soch, but I don't even know if he's interested. You know, at this point, does he want to come back? But that's why he didn't get another look was because as these front offices become more ingrained in analytics and they want a collaborative uh, process with their managers, the perception of social was that he was tough and that uh, some of this information, you know, and the use of it and, and the, uh, you know, the advice from the front office, for lack of a better way to describe it, was not something he was going to embrace. Last one for today, Brian Simkin, Simpson, excuse me,
0: he writes and as you said, the Dodgers will be compared to the 90s Braves. The 95 Braves won a strike-shortened season, and the 20 Dodgers won a COVID-shortened season. Is it that these teams work too hard in the regular season and just run out of gas in a normal postseason? Good comparison there, really getting down to the, the, the nitty-gritty.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it, and I think it's the structure of the pitching staff. You know, the Dodgers offense was so good during the regular season that you could get by with some of the pitching issues they had um, and continue to have success in the face of pitching issues they had. But I think once you get to a a higher level of of competition in the postseason, suddenly uh, those things that work during the regular season aren't going to work. It was interesting last week to hear Dave Roberts say basically he's got to examine – how he handles things uh, in the postseason, I think, you know, for, for that organization, which has been so successful, they want to take a look at it and see if there's something that they can do better. Got it. All right. That's it for bleacher
0: tweets, hashtag bleacher tweets on Twitter. As you're watching game two of the ALCS and game one of the NLCS tonight, we'll be back tomorrow.
1: That's it for today. My thanks to Ross Stripling, to Sarah, Tim Parker, Sarah Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay
4: safe. And remember, and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.